The Old Testament lesson is from Psalm 110. Listen carefully to God's holy word. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. And we ask you by your Holy Spirit to disperse a ray of brightness into the darkness of our minds that we might understand, that we might see you more clearly, that we might love you, and that we might follow you. In Christ we pray. Amen. Be seated, please. One complaint that I often heard in Slovakia from believers there was that it's hard to understand the Old Testament. Now, I spent a lot of energy trying to persuade Christians there to read the Old Testament, to become familiar with it. And I'm sure that if you went to Tarnava or Nitra or Bratislava and you asked the people there, what did Chris emphasize while he was here? And they would say, read the Old Testament. And they would probably say it with some kind of a mock weary voice because they heard it so many times from me. And I'm not sure that many of them that many of them actually took my counsel. But nevertheless, what about you? Do you think the Old Testament is difficult to understand? A lot of people think so. And I admit that uh, over the past year, as I have read through the books of Moses again, almost every day in my journal, I have some question for God about what does this mean? What do you, well, why are you doing things this way? I don't, I don't get it. Sometimes it seems like a puzzle. But what if we had an infallible commentary on some passage of the Old Testament? What if Jesus and the apostles spoke frequently about a particular passage in the Old Testament and tried to tell us and explain to us what it meant? Would that be interesting to you? Well, I have good news for you, if it would be interesting to you, because the passage we just read is that passage. <clears throat> um, Psalm 110, there is no other passage from the Old Testament that is quoted or paraphrased or alluded to more frequently in the New Testament. It is the passage that the apostles got much of their doctrine of Christ from. And if it was so important to them, it should at least interest us. 
In fact, there's so much written about Psalm 110 in the New Testament that we won't have time to get to it all today. We'll just look at a couple of key passages, one of which you've already heard. Before we do, we need to notice something about the voices and and the characters in Psalm 110. I hope you have it open in front of you. The first speaker's voice, of course, is David. He's the one who is praying this. That might be obvious, but it's going to become clear to you in a few minutes why that's important to take note of. And second, we notice immediately as he begins his prayer that there are two lords here. One speaking uh, to the other. And the first lord, you'll notice in your English translation, is in small caps. And that, of course, indicates from the English, that the Hebrew word there is Yahweh, the name, the covenant name of God. And that appears in verses 1, 2, and 4. But this Lord in caps, capital letters, is speaking to Lord in lowercase letters, and that's the Hebrew word Adonai. It's a more general name for Lord or God, not his personal name. So in verse 1, a Hebrew reader would hear something like, Yahweh says to my Adonai. In verse 2, Yahweh sends Adonai to rule. In verse 3, the people are offering themselves to this Adonai, even though Adonai is not repeated there. That's who they're offering themselves to. In verse 4, Yahweh declares that Adonai will be an eternal priest. In verse um, 5, Adonai is at Yahweh's right hand. And in verses 6 and 7, Adonai is the he who is doing all the acting there, taking care of his enemies. Now, in the Greek translation, it's it's one word, just like it is in English. It's uh, the Greek word for Lord, kyrios. Uh, But the religious leaders of the day and Jesus, of course, would have known the Hebrew. They would have been familiar with these two different words for Lord, and they would have known that that distinction was important for understanding. And now you know. So let's look at the New Testament because it explains this. First, we're going to start with Jesus's interpretation and use of this psalm in Matthew chapter 22. You can turn there if you like. I'm going to be reading from verses 41 to 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. Now, everyone knew that that the Messiah that was promised was going to be a descendant of David. So they said to him, the son of David, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your uh, your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. They found the Old Testament difficult too, I suppose. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So in Matthew chapter 22, earlier in this passage, the rulers of the people are ganging up on Jesus. They want his blood. They try to trap him 
with a question about paying taxes. And then they try to trick him with this uh, real puzzler about seven brothers for one bride and the resurrection. And then they try to catch him with a question about which law is the greatest, trying to get him to show favoritism about God, one particular part of God's law. And then Jesus turns the tables on them and he decides to ask them a question. And they know the answer to his question and that, and that it implies something that makes their blood run cold. His question is based on their understanding of Psalm 110. Like I said, everyone knew that it was about the Messiah. It was about the Christ. But Jesus' question forces them to reevaluate how they understood that. They knew that the Christ, the Messiah, was the son of David, but they missed something crucial. How can David, the writer of this psalm, call his own son Lord? How can his descendant be his master, his sovereign? His God. Well, as soon as Jesus asks this, they knew the answer and they were humiliated. They hated what the answer implied because the man standing in front of them was the son of David. And he was the son of David who had done all of the works that the Messiah was supposed to do that no one but the Messiah could do. And their hatred culminates just a few chapters later in Matthew 26 when Jesus is on trial before the high priest. And the only defense that Jesus gives before the high priest is an allusion to Psalm 110. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. That's an allusion to Psalm 110. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So what Jesus says is perfectly clear to the high priest and the rulers. So clear that then the high priest tore his robes and said he has uttered blasphemy. What is the blasphemy? That he claims to be the Son of God. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. So the council leaders, uh, or the council answers the high priest by condemning Jesus to death. They know that he claims to be the Lord of Psalm 110, the Adonai, uh, the one who is seated next to Yahweh on his throne. Okay, so this is what we know so far. From Jesus, we have learned the who of Psalm 110. Jesus is that Lord at Yahweh's right hand. All right, second New Testament passage is the one that we just heard from in Acts chapter 2. Peter helps us here understand Psalm 110. He tells us when the Messiah's reign began. This is the climax of that first Christian sermon that Howard pointed out when Peter preached at Pentecost. And I'm going to read again, starting in verse 29, not the whole passage, but starting in verse 29, if you want to follow along. Brothers... I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah. 
that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So when, so we know who of Psalm 110, Jesus, when did Jesus, the Christ of Psalm 110, begin his reign at God's right hand? It was when he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. So we know from Jesus who he is, and we know from Peter's sermon when this reign at God's right hand began. Last text from the New Testament that we'll look at. After he sits down, the psalm says that he will reign, subduing his enemies until they are all defeated. And when will that happen? When will he complete this rule? Well, Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to start reading in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of, uh, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign, here's Psalm 110, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Yahweh in Psalm 110 says to Adonai, reign until you have put, I have put all your enemies under your feet. And death is the last to be destroyed. It has not yet been destroyed, and it won't be until the end of this age. So, here's what we know about Psalm 110. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah that David spoke about. He began his reign when he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sat down at the right hand of God, the Father. And he is now, now, right now, subduing all of his enemies, and he will continue subduing all of his enemies until he finishes at the end of history when even death is destroyed. Now, there's a lot more to Psalm 110, a lot more said about it in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, commentary on the whole Melchizedek priesthood thing, but we don't have time for all of that today. I think we have enough to chew on. What we have explains how Christians can thrive in this, uh, what was your expression, Howard, unhinged world, out of control world, whatever it is. It's insane. How can Christian? this psalm explains how Christians can thrive in that world. You probably want me to explain that. Well, I got that from what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. 
I, I just read a part of that passage. That's the great chapter on the resurrection. In that chapter, Paul gives uh, theology. Well, first of all, he gives the historical evidence for the the resurrection, why we can have confidence that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. And he talked about uh, the theology of the the resurrection. Then he explains that Jesus is currently subduing all of his enemies and that he will end by destroying death. That's the part that we read. And then he talks about the resurrection of our bodies and the glory that we look forward to. Now, after all of that theology, Paul says this in verse 58. Therefore, because of all of this theology, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, the word therefore, of course, points us to the purpose of all of this theology. And here is how the biblical reasoning goes. This is how we're supposed to think about this from Psalm 110 and the explanation in the New Testament. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ of Psalm 110, and he is, if you believe in Christ's resurrection and current reign, which you should, If you believe that he will destroy all of his enemies, then, then you will be able to stand firm, says Paul, in this broken, utterly unhinged world. And you will be able to do courageous things in the power of the Lord, in the confidence that your work will not be in vain. Now, I hate to do this to spoil your morning. But take just a couple of seconds to think about the madness of this world that we live in. Just a couple of seconds. I don't know what's going to come into your head, whether it's the war in Ukraine or shootings in schools or the hatred that's in the air that we breathe or maybe your own personal things, some of the things that Howard alluded to in his prayer, financial issues, people struggling with health issues and so on. Whatever all of those things are, whatever you think is most horrifying and most difficult Uh, to face what you might face when you walk out the door today. Well, when you face these things, the distant things on the other side of the world or the things in the culture around us or the things that you're facing personally, and when you get close to that suffering, when you face even unbelief in your own family or maybe in your own heart, you know that this is not the way that things are supposed to be. You know deep inside that human beings were not created to live in a world like this. We were not created to do things like this to each other. It's not natural. It is, in fact, a foretaste of judgment and a warning. You know, in fact, that we were made to love God. We were made to serve each other. Instead, though, we run from God and we use each other to get what we want. And I think most, the most common thing that people want these days is power. But by doing this, we're working against God's nature. We're working against what he made us for. And we see the consequences. That's all that bad stuff I asked you to imagine, that insanity. But because, as we are Christ's followers, we aren't hopeless. We don't surrender to cynicism. We don't despair. And why not? Because Jesus rose from the dead, 
because he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, where now he is subduing his enemies and will completely subdue them all, including death itself. Well, how do most people, uh, even many Christians, how do most of us keep from discouragement in this world? How do we keep going from day to day? How do you keep going from day to day in the face of all of this? I think most people just try not, try not to think too much about all of this stuff. Or they do the British thing and do the stiff upper lip. Are there any British people here? I hope I didn't offend anyone, but uh, everybody knows that's British. All right. But Paul says that the way to deal with all of this is to think. To think about the power of the resurrection that assures us that he will defeat is defeating the sin in us. He's defeating all of our other enemies, and he will defeat death at last. Paul even says in Colossians 3, 2, set your eyes, keep your eyes on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where our focus should be, and that's what gives us confidence. So we are to think deeply until the greatness of the glory of Christ And what he is doing overwhelms our hearts. And when our hearts are overwhelmed by the idea of Christ's current reign and what he is doing, um, then we have hope. Then our faith is strengthened and our faith, as it's built up, strengthens our hope and confidence. And that sets us free. That sets us free to love. Nothing then will hold us back. Our own sin won't paralyze us because we'll know Christ's love and that he's destroying our sin even now. And we will care deeply about other people's suffering and pain and grief and loss. But it won't paralyze us because we'll know what Christ is doing through all of this and to all of this. It won't won't paralyze us because we understand that the world is broken, and that we know that it can and will be healed, and that that's exactly what Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father to do. And so, according to Psalm 110, verse 3, we will offer ourselves freely in the day of his power. We will abound in the work of the Lord, as Paul says, and our labor will not be in vain. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. Receive our prayer. You alone are the Holy One. And we submit ourselves to you. We take confidence in you and not ourselves. We thank you that you rule and reign even now, and we ask you to give us increasing confidence in you so that we will not give up, and we will not lose hope, but trust in you. Amen.